because at some point you're going to either have to trust them or you're going to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't trust that faculty member. I know what they've been saying at all these other meetings, right? So I just think that's a huge piece that we don't talk about that, that you get from being involved in different meetings and, and that sort of thing is that you actually start to really know and can learn who is who and, and what they're doing on campus. You just heard the tip of an awesome iceberg with Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Denison University, Olivia Aguilar. Uh, Olivia is an old friend of mine. Um, well, she's regular age, just like me, but uh, we have been friends for a very long time. And uh, it was a, a pleasure to have her join us and talk really honestly about her experiences and some of the wisdom she's gained along the way. You know, she talked in the episode about how some of the best mentors are just really honest. And I think she's providing mentoring to our audience in, in, in the most honest way possible on this episode. She really opened up about some of the challenges she's had as a faculty member and how difficult the position can be for someone, as in her case, is a first-generation college graduate from her family. So not only a first-generation college graduate, but then a PhD on top of that. And and talking about navigating that space, especially as an underrepresented uh, person, this is a great episode for everyone who is finding themselves in that position and also for people that are finding themselves in the position of wanting to support people in those underrepresented positions. So both both sides of the coin. For early career researchers, these are the kinds of issues that you hear about here and there at a seminar or a webinar, but this conversation felt true. It felt like it's the kind of conversation that everybody needs to be uh, participating in on a more regular basis. So true, Matt. I think that you will be able to tell from this conversation that um, we really enjoyed having it. And I think if you're like us, you will come away with a pretty clear message that um, the way that you support things that are important is that you show up and you do the work. So enjoy this conversation with Professor Olivia Aguilar. Today, we're welcoming to the podcast Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Denison University, Olivia Aguilar, and also a longtime friend of mine that I'm so excited to talk to. Yay. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so I'm really excited for this conversation because I have always admired you as a friend and just a person that lives really authentically and communicates really well. So I can't wait for other people to get to hear about your story. So why don't we start with the story and just ask you how you knew this was the right path for you and what's been challenging and what have been your approaches to it? Great. So thanks first. Those are very kind words and I appreciate it. And also appreciate you very much. I'm glad we've, we've been able to stay in touch but so I'll jump in. Okay. How did I know this was the path for me? I, I like that question because I think it's interesting, but I also don't, I didn't know this was the path for me. So I, that's sort of why I like this question a lot. I, you know, uh, let me see, let me take a step back and say how I, how I decided to get my PhD. I was in education. I was teaching and I was in public schools in Houston, go to Houston and just realized that there was a lot wrong with, with the education system. So, and I, my background's in the sciences and 
I thought, you know what, let me, let me go back and look at um, education a little bit more and decided to get my PhD and went to a school that allowed me to tie sort of environmental education with natural resources. And so I went to Cornell for that. And I really did not know what I was going to do with a PhD. I'm a first gen college student too. So like the idea of a PhD was sort of completely not only unfamiliar to my family, but unfamiliar to me. And so that was a whole sort of scary process. So I, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do with my PhD. It just felt like I needed to, there was something I wanted to study more and intently. And so I decided to go back to school and just see what would happen. Uh, so the program I was, I was in um, <clears throat> was funded for two years and then I had to find funding. And my fourth year that I needed funding, I found a fellowship that allowed me to teach at a small liberal arts college. It was a consortium for faculty diversity, which was a great program if anybody is interested in that. And what they do is they look for faculty of color to teach at small liberal arts colleges. Um, I think that the thinking, well, first of all, small liberal arts colleges happen to be a lot less diverse in terms of their, their faculty than sort of big state schools. So the idea is to get more faculty of color into these schools. Okay, so I needed funding. I saw this fellowship and I was like, yeah, I'll try it. <laughs> Why not? And I, I, that would also give me teaching experience. Really, my only teaching experience had been at A&M, actually, when I was working on my master's. So, yeah, I thought, all right, this will be, I can do this for a year. It was going to, I was only going to have to teach one course and I was going to be able to work on my dissertation, which was like huge bonus. And I went to this small liberal arts school and I just happened to come in at the same time that they were bringing in a new provost, a, a new provost and he cared deeply about the mission of a liberal arts. And so he sort of took me under his wing that first year we were both new and really wanted to teach me all about the liberal arts. And, and it was just a, wow. I mean, that was the year that I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm interested in. I can do this. So I think, I didn't know, I wouldn't say again that I knew it was the right path, but it was certainly one that I enjoyed the teaching part of it, sort of going to a place that had a mission that I also was really interested in. And so the mission that they had, that the school has really aligned with my, um, my own ideas of pedagogy and how I wanted to, to approach a classroom. And so it felt good. It felt right. But there were, a, you know, million times that I questioned the path and whether it was, I, I didn't even, I wouldn't even, again, I wouldn't say right path, but I questioned, is this what I want to do? You know, it's a, it's tough. It's a really hard field to be in. And I joke about this a lot, but we are constantly being critiqued from every, you know, from every angle, you know, when you're, when you're submitting manuscripts and when you're teaching, I mean, just everything you're going through is a constant form of evaluation and, and critique. So it can be really daunting and really challenging. And so I think that, well, let me just pause there and just say that, yeah, I, that when I started teaching at the school and found a, a mission that really aligned with what I wanted to do, then I felt like, okay, this is a, this is a possibility for me. I can do this. And so, yeah, so that's, how I got where I am. There's so many things that I'd love to unpack from that. You mentioned some challenges and I know that there's some questions on that, but because 
because you dropped one thing in there, I'd love to go back to what you said on the mentor that took you under his wing and to talk about the liberal arts thing. And because a lot of the people that we talk to and my perception is that a lot of our audience is in engineering, a lot of environmental engineers, a lot of sciences. And one of my particular passions in um, higher education is really melding the benefits of the humanities into kind of understanding values and what the expertise from the humanities has to bring to people who are working in science. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what you learned about what the importances of the liberal arts and what does that mean to you to meld together your work in environmental studies with liberal arts education? So that's great, actually, um, Christine, because something that I totally left out of that story is that I found myself in an interdisciplinary department. And and my work is very interdisciplinary. And I remember even, this is so hard for us, I think, going through the the PhD process. I remember my... um, my advisor in, uh, you know, at Cornell saying like, she was really worried that I was not going to be marketable, that I wasn't going to be able to get a job because I was so interdisciplinary and she just couldn't figure out where I would find a home. But I do think she was probably thinking more along these bigger schools, you know? And so I sort of understand that concern, but I think it's unfortunate because we do become so siloed, so specialized, that this notion of interdisciplinary can can sometimes be hard. In fact, when we are doing searches for for people in our department, it's often hard because everybody is either this or that. And so finding that interdisciplinarity is really hard. I mean, there's a few every search we have out of like hundreds that might truly be interdisciplinary. And yet I find, especially in the environmental field, and so I think this is sort of what you're thinking about too, maybe not, but we cannot solve the environmental issues that we're facing through science alone. I mean, you know, I I get frustrated with my own field, which so my, if I had a specialization, it would be environmental education. And I think for so long, we really wanted to use science only to, as, as the form of like education, not thinking about, you know, civics, not thinking about psychology, not thinking about, the humanities, as you said, right? The arts, any ways that we really could reach a bigger audience. And I think that's really set us back in terms of environmental education. I think we're finally now doing a lot more interdisciplinary work, but it's huge because again, you just cannot solve these issues through one field. And so that interdisciplinarity is really important. There's a term that I'm I just kind of came across recently called cognitive diversity, which you're probably very, very familiar with, but I read a few articles on that. I'm kind of in love with this idea and that's exactly what you're talking about. Right. And we, we did want to talk a little bit today about, you know, diversity and inclusion and that piece that you're so passionate about. But the first place I wanted to go is something that we actually just heard in your first answer, which is you being a first generation college student, because it's especially hard, I think, for those types of students to make it through this entire, like run these gauntlets of academia, because there's nobody there to guide them or to tell them, oh yeah, it's going to be okay on the other end. And at the same right. time, those people are probably the most valuable. Like if you're talking about, for example, communicating uh, environmental problems 
right? Right. Having that cognitive diversity amongst amongst the academic base is probably critical to to this exercise. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Let me just say about the first gen thing. I think that you know, in terms of what you know, important to have, and I think the support for first gen is so difficult because so many first gen students don't really know what they need because it's their first time, right? So it's, you don't know you don't know what you need because you haven't been into in the situation, and so. I mean, almost, I think what we've really tried to do is, is build a, a base of first-gen professors, first-gen staff that can sort of come together and serve on panels, but also just be support for some of our students. <clears throat> I remember being, I mean, the first time I heard of like, like I don't know, give me the NSF, right, grants was at Cornell. I mean, so I was already working on my PhD before I knew any of this stuff. And by that time, I'd already, you know, had a project like these were just things that I had no idea existed, which I feel almost a little bit embarrassed about saying, but yeah, when your parents, you know, didn't go to college, nobody in your family went to college and you're sort of fighting for yourself. You're sort of your own advocate a lot. There's just a lot. You don't know. You slip, you, if you slip between the cracks, you know, um, you don't even know that you've slipped between the cracks because you don't know what, you know, what support is supposed to look like. So I think that that is just a a huge issue to address for sure. Yeah, what you're making me think of, actually, speaking of interdisciplinarity, since you seeded that, I have a philosopher friend who writes about the role of Mm. role models and the importance of them to our identity. And I mean, how much of your ability to see what is possible based on just what you've seen before and it may be that plenty of first gen students or people from different backgrounds that you know they may have the same level of uncertainty or a lack of specific pieces of knowledge that they need as someone else but you can't kind of underestimate the power of just the the just visceral discomfort because people are not available that look like a person or have the same experiences. And so like your default assumptions, you're not doing the default life, I guess, that you grew up seeing when you're first gen in anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think just being aware that those could be challenges. And and I think that that kind of helps with somebody's ability to be explicit and clear and kind in their communication and their expectations as a as a mentor, as a professor, when you just strip away your assumptions of the background knowledge of anybody that you're working with. I think that's a huge way of of putting it. And I'll try to tie your, some of the stuff you just said in with what Matt was asking me about earlier, but I think the assumptions is huge. I think, you know, this notion of, yeah, I just, I think stripping that down and just recognizing we don't all come to the, to the table with the same experiences. It's just really huge for everybody. And it's, it's a big learning process. And it's hard. So Matt, just to bring up, you were talking about cognitive diversity, which I think is also really important. But I think the part Christine brought up in terms of representation is also really important, right? Because of these, because it helps us, I think, break down those assumptions a bit better when we can interact with people that are something that are different, right? But then also that we have somebody that is like us that we can sort of reach out to. I think, Christine, this is what you were getting to. And just saying, okay, I feel at least comfortable because I know they're from the same state or whatever, right? Those things I think are important too. One of the issues we're dealing with on our campus right now is 
not having, you know, we've worked really hard to get more diverse faculty. And I think we're doing better on that front. Uh, we have our, we've increased the diversity of our student population really quickly. And we're now, I think, struggling to make sure we can support them adequately on campus. And so maybe even Matt, you know, back again to the cognitive diversity, even though that's an important part too, just all of these other little pieces being, being there for support in that way. Right. So as soon as you start to diversify something, you have to have the support there that can enable that diversity to flourish. That's what I, that's probably how I would put it. Right. So how can diversity flourish when these systems might be, um, I was more attuned to something that is a lot more homogenous, right? And now you've got this diversity and and now how do you address that? So one of the issues that we're struggling with right now, I think on our campus is, I think a lot of campuses are struggling with mental health issues. And I think that's becoming big, but then now also the mental health of different populations, right, is different. And so when you only have um, counselors um, that really only come from one particular background and are, you know, of, of one um, ethnicity or, or race. And then you've got, we, you know, this huge student diversity population or diverse population. How does that mesh, right? Like how can those few mental health workers or, or counselors help with that population? So that's something that we're struggling with a little bit right now. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it just makes me think of, we just, we just actually interviewed someone last week and they're, whole idea I, I guess it was two weeks ago but they, basically their whole one of their concepts that they talk about in their book is something called a self map like the things that you put on your and i can't help but think about how as especially students that are students that are maybe maybe first gen maybe just not seeing other students that are like them around mm-hmm. they're trying to gradually introduce this idea that I'm, I'm an academic Mm -hmm. onto their, onto their self map. Right. Right. And if they don't have, so I was kind of thinking about it as like a brain process almost like where you're like, you're trying to make it closer and closer to the center of who you are. And at first it's like a very foreign outside concept because there's nobody around you that, that does that kind of thing. And so I, I'm again not asking a question or having a discussion. I I don't know. I am not coming up with good questions today, but it just I'm I'm just listening to you and I'm so fascinated that I'm like not even I'm just like, oh, let me follow up on this. Well, that's fine. I, don't, <laughs> I just feel better. But I, I just think it can be connected to the mind, you know, like how the minds of everyone is working on campus and and realizing that we're we've got to service everyone's sort of mind map or their self map of who they believe themselves to be right it's actually interesting i mean i feel bad guys i'm totally going off the rails here no it's conversation (laughs) this is this is is really good yeah we say in our first episode when we were talking about why we did this that we wanted that you feel like the biggest mentoring or the like the useful thing you remember from a conference is sometimes like the bar afterward or the coffee shop somewhere and so like that that was the whole reason we started this that's great well, so I was going to just, Matt, interesting what you said. This is probably not the cognitive piece, but what I, so I study a theory called communities of practice. I mean, everybody uses that term now. So it has, I think, less and less theoretical meaning than it did when I first started using it. But it was a framework that I looked at to study how, essentially how students became interested in or practiced science is what I was looking at. And, and specifically how Latino youth were started to engage with science. 
because we have these communities that we feel like we belong to, right? And then we have communities that we're like, well, that, that's not us. That's not where we belong. And those essentially affect our identity and what we're willing to engage with, which is, I think is sort of what you're, you're kind of saying. And then yeah, and so how do we break that down to say, okay, you can actually engage with this community. What would that look like? And then the other cool thing about the community of practice framework that I use is that it, you have this trajectory where you can go from sort of peripheral member to core member. So what does that trajectory look like? Right. And so, but, but having an idea of what a core member does, I think is really important so that you can be like, yeah, that's what I should be doing. And, and so you have to have access to that and, and be able to see what that looks like. And I think, and this again, goes back to that representation piece, Christine, where like you have to see that somebody that looks like you or is like you in some way has made it to core member. Right. So so that, you know, like it, it just helps. Otherwise, you're the pioneer, and that's a lot of pressure, right? How 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 to do it? I think the the trajectory is less clear sometimes. Yeah. So I have two simultaneous reactions. I'm going to try to <laughs> say them in order. <laughs> um, one is that I just think it's so interesting that what your domain expertise is actually maps really closely onto what you're demonstrably living out. So you kind of have this meta level understanding that's really rich that you bring to also the, the work of educating and building the educational culture that you want. Um, And then about that. So you mentioned that at your university in particular, and I, I know this to be not unique um, that diverse faculty is aspirational at this point. um, And that, as a person of culture, color and culture, um, <laughs> like, very culture. Like, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yes. Um, but um, some friends of mine who are, you know, female professors or you know, people who represent communities that need more representation, it can be the case that if a person is filling this wonderful role that we need to see more of, of representing people and being a scholar, which is what they came there to do, that sometimes before we get to this idealized state where there is better representation, then the people who are women and underrepresented minorities end up not only having to do the work of succeeding, but also taking on the emotional labor that goes along with educating the people around them and also being the go-to counselor for the people that they are the representatives for. And I know that that um, the people that I have talked to maybe often love that part of their job, but it is an extra yoke that that person right. is bearing. And I wonder for people who are listening, if, if that resonates for you or if, if that is something that um, that there's any advice to navigate or just manage either emotionally or pragmatically? Well, I would say I'm guessing for any faculty of color or, or graduate students of color out there, I'm sure it does resonate, but it's a huge, uh, it exists. What you're saying is true and real. Um, there is a burden of, I guess, the invisible labor, right? And, and women talk about this too, the invisible labor of women for different reasons. So that part is huge. And some of us, I think, feel, like you said, called to do the work because we feel like, you know, what I was just saying, like you have to lay that trajectory down, right? You have to show that it's possible. And here's, I guess you don't have to, but you want to because you, you, you want to support your 
your peers, right? That you know are going to have the same struggles as you. I think that's one of the really hard parts is knowing how much the struggle, like how much of a struggle there is and knowing that other people are going to face it. And so really trying to make that road as smooth as you can for other people, I think is why we take on that, that labor just because it's, it's, we've been through it. And so it's so daunting and you know, somebody's going to have to go through it. So it exists. And, and so what do I do? I mean, one of the things I think that our school that we did at our school that I'm very uh, appreciative of, and I think has helped at least me tremendously and other people I know, but we had a group of, a group of women who decided to take on uh, this, this work and create sort of an organic support group. And we call ourselves faculty of color and international faculty short for short, we call it POSIP. But so we have this group that we just started coming together to talk about things. And we were sort of a support group at first because there were so few of us. And then we sort of, as we grew and also as we became tenured, became more of an advocate advocacy group, I think. So both support and advocacy. And that's just huge because I think every once in a while, what's really good to see is that you're not the only one, you're not the only one doing this work, right? There's other people that do this work. And after the election, um, the 2016 election, something that we felt we had to do for our campus, a number of us decided like we were going to have an open forum on some of the issues that students were having on campus, specifically some of our Latino students and worrying about immigration status and, and those sorts of things. And so we decided to hold this forum and one of a beautiful thing happened where like sometimes it was just so emotional and we were getting so overburdened and, you know, you could just see everybody just like down and and exhausted. And one of my friends that was doing like the work with me said, you know, we've got to be able to like take, we've each got to be able to take a step back and know that the others are going to be there to do the work for us when we do. And she was like, so what we need to say is like, when we need a break, you know, or when we need to just take some time to ourselves to just get emotionally situated, that we know that the others are going to pick it, pick it up, you know, and do that work for us. And that when they need a break, same thing will happen, right? And so that was just really, I think, empowering for me to see how this group of, you know, women, faculty of color came together to support each other and understood that we were going to all have to step back from the work for a little bit when we needed to. And that it was okay because other people would pick that work up. And so that's what I see in this group is just, yeah, we've got each other and we know we'll do the work when we can. And every once in a while, we're going to have to step back and just sort of self-preservation, but know that that work will continue. I don't know that that's not something I've personally done, but it's been something that has helped me on my campus. If you're out there in our audience and you're looking for a faculty position, but you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed by the whole process, we've actually taken some of the best lessons from this podcast and from our own personal experience and put it into a six-week email course where you get one email a week for six weeks with some tasks that you can do to set yourself up to have success in your search for a faculty position. This course can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash FPP course. Again, if you're searching for a faculty position, we have a free course for you. That is at teamhelium.co slash FPP, C-O-U-R-S-E. 
Thanks, and back to the show. So I have a story that kind of relates to that because, and I, and then I will promise to ask a question after this. <laughs> so it, this this is something that I spent some time as a journal editor, and the journals, just like almost any other organization, are, are trying really hard to diversify their their editorial board, their their editors. And we would identify these amazing candidates. Usually, usually they were underrepresented candidates because we were like, how do we diversify? Let's ask these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would oftentimes tell us, there's 40 million things I get asked to do on a daily basis. And so you talked about a little bit there about being able to step down or step aside when you're, when you need to say no, right? Cause you're just, you just burn out or you just can't keep saying yes to things. So I don't know. So I think there's two questions here. One is advice for people that find themselves in that situation, having to say no to a great, great opportunities because, Hey, I've just asked to do everything. And then two advice for people that maybe get put in that role that aren't underrepresented. How can they support how they can continue to support the, the, the objective, the long-term objective, even though they're not, mm-hmm. you know, th- maybe the mm-hmm. ideal candidate to fill that role. Mm, that's huge. Okay. Let me answer that one first. Cause I don't know that I am good at the other one of the not saying no. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm getting better, but, um, but let me, the, the one you talked about last in terms of, I think what you're saying is like, maybe how can you be a good ally sort of. And but I think you're, what you brought up is interesting. I actually wrote an op-ed about this in Truth Out because, you know, there's obviously the, the environmental field and specifically environmental education is a predominantly white field. And they have been working more at trying to diversify probably since the 90s. And so what they were doing was bringing people, trying to get people onto their boards, like seems like an obvious way, right? But there's, but my op-ed, I sort of go, I just say that like you have to go beyond just having people on the boards because even if you have people on the boards, if you're not listening to them and if you're not sort of recognizing what they're bringing to the table, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who you have at the table. Like you, if you're not listening to them and you're not heeding sort of what they're bringing to the table and I've seen that happen, then it doesn't matter. And so I've seen a lot of people you know, I hate to say like be tokenized, but some, to some extent be tokenized and it doesn't work and it's not good for either party. Right. Like, and so I would just say what I have tried to do. So maybe now I can get to the, to the saying no part and not getting to the allyship part yet. Hopefully I'll get back to that. Sorry. But what I have tried to do more is be very, is to do a little bit more vetting and research in terms of what I'm saying yes to, because I don't want to be tokenized. And I don't, I don't have the time for it, right? I just don't have the time for that anymore. I don't know that everybody does that. I mean, it depends on where you're at in your, um, what am I trying to say? The ten, you know, your tenure clock and your career track, right? Because there are so many more things that I was willing to do <laughs> prior to getting tenure than I am now, unfortunately. I mean, that's unfortunate. I was telling Christine this the other day, even my research is so different now that I have tenure than it was before. So it's hard. I mean, that tenure process, I mean, the the process in and of itself is repressive, right? So 
that's a hard, that's a, that's a challenge. But yeah, I think being careful what you say yes to. And I really try to focus my energy on a few things, like a few categories that I'll say yes to. Essentially, I'll, I will work with people that are att- attending to issues of race and social justice and attending to issues of environment, environmental and sustainability, education. I mean, those are my two big areas. And then anything else, you know, that looks like fun or whatever, I'm like, mm, maybe, but I really, I, you know, try to stay focused on that and also try to put my energy where I feel like I'll get the most, like, I really like seeing things accomplished. So where am I going to do something where something's going to get accomplished versus just sort of where am I a talking piece or whatever? Um, go ahead. You said you were going to go back to, yeah, <laughs> yeah just to want to make sure we caught that because that's really important. If, if you have something to say, yeah. if, if you can't well, think of something right now, that's fine too. You know, I think that what I, I mean, okay. I, I don't know if I can say this is how you can be a good ally. There's actually a couple of pieces out there that I've read that are probably helpful, but what I can say not to do is not to, not to put the burden of the, well, I mean, I've already said sort of don't tokenize it, not to put all of the burdens of like, okay, well, this one person, you know, hmm, how should I say this? But what I've seen not work is where people say, oh, I want to be the voice for you, right? Like, I think sometimes people think, oh, that's a good way I can be an ally is if I can be the voice for a person. But if you weren't asked to be the voice, don't do it, you know? And, and if you were, listen carefully about what they're asking you to do. I think, but, um, yeah, I've seen that go arise sometimes where people just think, Oh, I'm, you know, I care about these issues and I'm visible and I, um, have some influence. So I will just be your voice without really either being asked to or really understanding what they are voicing. And I think that that can be problematic. And I think the, the best allies that I have seen are ones that are truly listening and then are sort of asking, how can I help? What can I do? I think that's just where I would start. I feel like the listening point is ubiquitously useful and somewhat of a, sometimes an unfortunately rare um, actual skill because it's listening, not just to perform the act of not closing your ear holes, but like to, to change like what you think or feel. And then I also, I, I don't know. I just want to name the, that maybe there is a relationship piece too. Like sometimes there's like this conundrum where even asking a person, what should I do is putting the burden on them to educate mm-hmm. a little bit. Right. So it's sort of like um, when you see this, you mentioned women and in invisible labor. So when in the stories that you might see written up when the, in this, you know, in the normal archetype, Mm-hmm. That you see if the if the man partner is like, well, just tell me what I should do. Do I do the laundry or what? And and then it's actually knowing what to do is part of the job, right? Like that's part of the job. But at the same time, if you have come to things with an open heart and you know, these are your colleagues and you you have shown each other and and performed a culture that you're all in it together and you have each other's back then then it sounds like you're saying that that doesn't necessarily feel to be asked what can i do by a person who's listening who is you know together in it with you um are you saying that that doesn't necessarily feel like the question itself is burdensome if you know that the person is showing up or 
Yeah, no, I think that that's true. But actually, you're right. I, I should take that back. I don't think I mean like broadly, how can I be an ally? I do think that that's burdensome. And so you're right. That problem, that's a little bit problematic. I think more, I'm actually thinking of specific instances on campus where somebody might already have some knowledge and sort of look to the situation. And you're right. You sort of know where they're coming from. And it might be better. I think I like your point. So maybe it's better to say, hey, you know, these are some things that I have thought of. Like, I'm happy to pursue this if you think it would help, you know, and, and have sort of, again, I'm being really specific and thinking of like instances on campus where where that might be appropriate. But no, I, I totally think you're right. Like coming to somebody and just saying, how can I be an ally? Yeah, don't do that. I mean, that's really hard because, <laughs> you know, um, again, that's just, that is putting the work on, on somebody else. But really seeking out, I think, so I'm starting at a different place after somebody has sought out how to be an ally. And after you have built, built that relationship, I think, Christine, that you're talking about. And then, and then you know, saying, all right. I mean, and again, I, I'm thinking of my, my white colleagues um, who have said, you know, would this be helpful if I did this? Would it be helpful if I did this? So sort of having those things, I think, on board so that you could be like, so for me, what I can do then is think through that and be like, hmm, yes, it would be if you did it this way or no, actually, that's not what we need right now. What we really need is, you know, this or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. That relationship is really key. And, you know, the listening parts there, I think the other thing um, is just knowing, like you just, I mean, I'm sure you you both know this. You just know who shows up, right? Like the things that you care about, where you see those people show up, then you know they care, but it's really hard to think you might have an ally and an issue if they're never the ones coming to like the talks or the, or the, you know, meetings or whatever about those issues. And then to all of a sudden be like, Oh really? You're like my ally in this issue. I haven't seen you at all when it comes to these issues. So I think that's a bit telling too. And I think that's a, that's another key. Like if you really want to be an ally, then you've got to, you've got to show up and do, do that work. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's uh, not about asking questions, but rather like being in those discussions and just being a listener for a long time right. before you're, before you can start to ask more dir- direct questions that are more constructive as opposed to just starting from like no- nothing. That's right. right. Um, and so I think that's kind of what you're talking about is just literally sitting there and saying, not doing something else, looking at your phone while, you know, so, uh, it's an important session for somebody. So, yeah. And I think that that's actually probably where you learn a lot about people and about their challenges and about, you know, struggles. I mean, one of the things that I, um, have been saying, I don't know if I would consider myself, you know, a mentor to other faculty, but one of the things that I try to tell some of the junior faculty is that it's really important to get, to get on different committees with people that you have never worked with before on campus, because especially when you're a small campus, I mean, this is probably true for any size, but when you're a small campus and you're making these big decisions like that pass through quickly in faculty meetings, and we, a lot of us go to our faculty meetings, but you sort of have to trust a number of people, a number of your faculty. I mean, you really, and so if you want to trust them, you have to know them. And if you're not like hanging out with them socially, which I'm guessing you're not hanging out with like most of your, your, you know, faculty socially all the time, then you got to be in these committee meetings where decisions are, are being discussed so that you know where people are coming from and what they're bringing to the table. It just really helps, I think, to under, to be able to know your faculty 
because at some point you're going to either have to trust them or you're going to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't trust that faculty member. I know what they've been saying at all these other meetings, right? So I just think that's a huge piece that we don't talk about that, that you get from being involved in different meetings and, and that sort of thing is that you actually start to really know and can learn who is who and, and what they're doing on campus. You know what I really um, am thinking of here is, you know, I know a lot of us think about these things in a broader sense, but taking them to the academic place of just, um, you know, you see a lot of well-meaning people maybe just missing an opportunity to make space for others, right? And so and so, I think sometimes with the goal when some people take on the idea of diversity and inclusion is to avoid being exclusive. So, oh, I'm not saying these bad things. I would never talk to somebody that way. Or maybe this is what mm-hmm. the story they're telling themselves is. But um, I think that it's a pretty simple message that is, is great that you're saying is like show up. Right do the work and corollary name it as work. That is, it's not a paper. You're not going to get a citation, a single citation for right. being a person who in your culture is doing the work of going to these seminars. So be, make sure your face is at that seminar. That is mm-hmm. how do we deal with harassment on campus or how do we support underrepresented minorities on campus? Like, I think that that's really good advice that show up to that, make block it off on your calendar, be a person whose face is there. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can signal that you're there to do the work. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's huge. Sorry, my kids are calling me. So (laughs) (laughs) So, like, they're going to come downstairs at any moment. I'm like, should I talk? Because (laughs) actually Matt, that's a good entree for me to get to say, since I brought up the, um, the archetype of uh, the males not doing invisible labor that I know both you and my husband are awesome. uh, At least half partners, possibly more. Okay. (laughs) I'm on the phone. No, I think that's a good point. Can you say hi? Uh, And that's why I, hi. Okay. I got to go back. I got to go back to work. Okay. Okay, I'll be, I'll be done in I'll be done in a little while. Okay, and the TV is off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And she has okay. just spoken the secret to all working parenthood. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so one thing that we also wanted to bring up is um, it's kind of a pivot, but uh, but also still touches on this is um, how you know how do you work in an arena where the subject matter aligns with your dearest passions in life. And those can be a struggle if they're environmental studies without it either consuming your mind or putting boundaries on that so that you can kind of uh, save a little bit of, yeah, live. Yeah. I'm actually just looking for you to help save me. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Selfish question. Yeah. Right. No, I think, I mean, yeah, you're right. I have no answers for that. But I um, I think especially in our field, it's so hard, especially in our field, because if it's not consuming us in terms of like what we're teaching or what we're doing on a daily basis, it's consuming you at home, you know, or geez, at the grocery store. I don't know, wherever you're at and you're thinking about these things and why is this person buying this or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Why is this person driving this car? I mean, different things like that. But So I think that that just in and of itself is hard to turn off. But I I think if I, I I think your question is more sort of about like life work balance kind of, is that what you're 
asking a little bit. And so, um, yeah, I, there's not a, obviously I don't think anybody has that magic recipe for that, but again, I just would go back to say that it's so much different now after tenure. And I do want to, I think I want to come back to that point I, I first started with in terms of the path. I think that this is such a, it's a, I mean, I am just really real and upfront about how hard this process is to be on a tenure track and go through tenure in many ways, like people will get their dissertation and be like, Oh, that was the hardest thing I've done. I think in many ways the tenure process is harder, is more difficult than, than that. And especially if you are a person of color, I would say that especially if you're a person of color, um, just because of all of the, the things you have to deal with with student evaluations, if that's important on your campus, um, that becomes really traumatizing. And then the, you know, the politics that inevitably happen probably, you know, similar politics to what might happen in, in grad school. And then you've got it at this other level. So I just think that that tenure process is just grueling. And I tell people it is not like, they, I don't think anybody should feel bad if they decide to opt out. I just don't think, you know, we work so hard to do this and a lot of us take on debt. And that's really, I think that the struggle is that people are in this debt and they're working hard and they think that this is this path that they have to stay down. But I, one of the things that helped me go through the tenure process was knowing that if I didn't get tenure, I could do something else. Like it wasn't the end all be all for me. And that was just a huge, that just really helped me to be okay with whatever the outcome was going to be. And luckily the outcome was positive, but if it wasn't, I had to know that like I was going to be fine. And I wasn't just like, this wasn't, this didn't define me. And I think what happens sometimes is we get so caught up in this being an academic that it sometimes defines us. Um, but I recently had a colleague who she just sort of left, not academia totally, but she left um, a teaching. She left, you know, being sort of a professor because of just, it was just emotionally, it was just draining, you know? And she really struggled with this idea of, but this is what I thought I was going to do and sort of being okay with not doing it. And, and yeah, I mean, we had these constant conversations and it's just, you know, this doesn't have to be the only way. That's what I would just say. It doesn't have to be the only way. And especially because I do think that work-life balance is really hard to get. And um, I hope nobody's like comes into this thinking that they're just going to have it. I mean, it, it's probably easier for some people than it, than it is for others. I think that's for sure, but it's really, it's a real struggle. And so I just hope people are not surprised by that when they, when they start on a tenure track path and, and, you know, all of the struggles. Um, so so now to, to get to your question, um, <laughs> I think, um, well, now that I have tenure, it's a lot easier. Um, it did pay off. It does feel a lot better to be on the other side of that. But you are still super busy. I mean, now people would say it before, and it's true. You just get asked to do so much more. But I also am a lot better, Matt, or back to your earlier question, at saying no. I'm just like, I have no problem saying no. I don't feel guilt about it. Um, and I really only try to say yes if I feel like I'm going to, like, it's going to be a good impact. Like, I'm really going to be helpful or it's really going to be a good project. So I recently resigned from something that I was supposed to do for three years. I did two years and I was like, I'm resigning. And I felt guilt, a little bit guilty about it. But I also was like, there's just no need for me to stay on, yeah. on any of it. It's just silly for me to even feel guilty because nobody cared. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, so... um yeah, I think just being more comfortable with saying no and really sort of thinking about how like you can 
focus on these on these things that really are going to make an impact and then other things you can just be like yeah i'm not i can't do that that's so important it's like uh it's like the whole the key to the whole thing right and i think it's just you you mentioned earlier vetting opportunities and i think it's just really hard to vet when you're well one you want you want to take as many opportunities as you possibly can but mm-hmm. you also just don't know how to vet mm-hmm different different opportunities and so that just comes in some ways with seasoning or just yeah th- having the right mentors to guide you key oh mentors i haven't talked about that but that's so important right yeah you're exactly right so we'd like to do this little thing that's kind of become a joke in the in the podcast which is called the light speed round <laughs> and it's oh, and it's really just a way of kind of trying to wrap up the show. I mean, we had this, we've had, we're having this great conversation, but we, we know we only have so much time with you. Mm -hmm. So we try to do this rapid fire question answer thing and it becomes more of a non light speed round at some point, but (laughs) I'll let, I'll let Christine kick it off. Okay. Oh, this makes me nervous. (laughs) Um, You don't have to be light speed. This is only our attempt at making ourselves be quiet. So Uh, you say it however you want. That's why Matt's laughing is because we're bad at that. Uh, We just, our guests are so interesting that we're like, oh, one more thing. So, um, okay. First one, what is the most important thing to look for in a mentor? And I'm speaking as you as a faculty member, when you're looking for mentors to help you in your career. Honesty. Like somebody who's just going to be honest about about life. <laughs> uh, yeah, honesty. That's good. That's good. I think we leave it there. How <laughs> how how do you refresh and recharge? Oh, geez. Um, love a glass of wine with my girlfriends at the end of a week. Um, my front porch, actually, a lot. You, um, this is our first successful Lightspeed Road. So, okay. okay. What is the best book you've read recently? Ooh. Oh, what's the best one? I just read David Sedaris's Calypso. That was pretty good. The one that I loved was Nightingale, which I think everybody's talked about and has read. Have you read that, Christine? No, I haven't. Oh, it's amazing. All the Light You Cannot See. I liked that one a lot too. Those are the three that come to mind. The last one is, what is the first thing you'd go back and tell incoming professor or incoming assistant professor Olivia, if you could, knowing what you know now? Oh, geez. Oh, that's so tough, Matt. That's not a lightning round question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be like one, one sentence. You only get like one time traveling sentence to, to go back. I get one time traveling sentence. Oh man, this will be really hard, but probably worth it. <laughs> <laughs> like a good professor. That is, <laughs> is amazing. That's the episode title. I like it. I like it. Honesty. Just um, I I feel like um, of course, not surprised, but I feel like I we could hang out and talk for for a long time. But um this is probably a great place to leave it. And I just want to thank you for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. A couple more things here, Team Helium. Episode 27, 
The resources and the notes and the transcript for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 27. There you can actually find clickable links to different parts of the episode. So if you want to go back and listen to a very specific part of the episode, you can go to that webpage and there's links there with timestamps to really refresh your memory about the different parts. So if you want to go back and just listen to a particular part, that's a great resource for you. We have a special announcement for you here at the end of this episode. We are launching a course in the fall of 2019 for those who don't want to feel isolated, stressed, or overwhelmed looking for faculty positions. We've had such a great response to our email course that we're actually launching a paid course for people searching for faculty positions. That course will match you with a mastermind group and give you weekly coaching on the things that you need to know to get to your faculty position. If you want to sign up for that course, you can find that at www.teamhelium.co slash one. That is the number one. You can say hello to us on Twitter at Helium Podcasts, or you can go and give a review on iTunes. If you really love the show, we'd love to hear your feedback on these episodes. We also love to hear your ideas for any future episodes of Helium Podcast. As usual, the episode music was provided by mblakemusic.com and the episode was edited by Zach Hendren, produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and Matt Hotze. You stuck around to the end here, so you get to hear about episode 28. Next week, we'll be talking to Sean Webb, author of Mind Hacking Happiness, and we'll be talking a little bit about meditation and how that can help you recover from the rigors of academia. See you in a couple weeks. There's lavender in China. Hi. <laughs>